Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. In this episode, Emily talks about the overstated rivalry between Mozart and the Italian composer Antonio Salieri. Jill talks about how the color of wine can be misleading. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Jill Mott. Hello, Emily Reese. How goes it today? It goes incredibly well. We just, I don't know about you, I feel great after that somewhat bountiful bowl of pasta we just had. It's delicious. We um, decided to indulge in some sumptuous semi-aged Barolo with our lunch just Mm -hmm. to get us ready for this episode, which seemed like a miraculous and marvelous idea. It was the best idea maybe in the history of scores and (laughs) pours. Eat before we sit down to record, yes. Uh, And I don't know what Barolo is, and so I'm looking forward to you explaining that. I will definitely will. The... We decided to do um, myths debunked, I think, for a couple different reasons. I was really curious because there are nine million myths in the world of wine, um, (laughs) whether it's regarding technical things, whether it's, you know, um, historical facets of wine or winemaking. Um, So that's really easy for me to get my head around. But Mm -hmm. I wondered, gosh, there's got to be that in classical music as well. And Emily was like right away knew what she was going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, the uh, supposed rivalry between an Italian composer named Salieri and an Austrian composer named Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, or Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Which didn't, wasn't his youngest son, they called him Wolfgang, even though they named him something else? Don't know. Don't remember. Franz? Yes, I think so. Interesting. Franz or Thomas or something like that. I don't know. Anyway. That's Jill doing more research than me as usual. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, didn't Mozart's 13th stillborn child have a middle name of... Amadeus. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, so and I decided to talk about a technological aspect of wine. Um, Heading into winter, everybody thinks that red wines are more like appropriate for winter or fuller bodied fare. And that just got me thinking about all of the misconceptions or myths surrounding red wine, which made me think the first thing I thought of honestly was color. Yeah. Um, and it's maybe because now that the weather's changing here in Minneapolis, I've had several people coming into the wine shop, um, talking, asking me about, you know, I want something that's dark and rich and full bodied. And I was like, well, that doesn't, any of those things we could like shift something and say it's it's light in color but it's full bodied or right, it's right. it's really dark in color but it's really light bodied and so it made me want to talk about that cuz i think you can learn a lot about concepts in wine by just focusing on what color means and what it doesn't yeah um and then i thought we'd just finish it off on the wine side talking about why do people hate chardonnay why do people hate riesling you yeah. asked me these questions like why or not hate but why do People go, oh, I don't want something. I don't want that. Yeah. I don't want this. I don't want that. And you're like, mm-hmm. whoa, whoa, mm-hmm. hold the phone here. That's like saying, I don't know, someone acts a certain way because their name is Stephen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the biggest thing I have learned, well, one of the biggest things I've learned through the experience of, you know, just spending time with you is uh, 
how it really does, you have to explain why, what you like until you can't ask yourself why anymore. Okay. You know what I mean? So like if, if I say to you, I like it dark and you say, why? And I can answer that question. That's what I needed to tell you in the first place is whatever I say with the answer. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. So that's where you're trying to get is to what is it that you like about the thing that you're telling me that I like, you and, know? And so many people have this periphery. I had someone come in the other day and they said, you know, I want something like full bodied. Like I want a, a Cabernet or something really dark, you know, like a Pinot Noir. And right there, that's, you're, you, you started to say something that made sense. And then all of a sudden you like <laughs> jammed on the brakes and now you're going 15 in a 70 mile an hour. So like, yeah. so, and I, yeah. all I wanted to say was like, what do you want? Yeah. Try not to put things in there to speak on wine terms. Just yeah. tell me what, in in a way that you get it, what you mm -hmm. want. Exactly. And we'll get there a lot quicker than if yeah. we start to like body yeah. this and tan in that. And so, yep. and why did you, des you decided very quickly on Salieri, Mozart and that yes, rivalry. I did. Or supposed rivalry. How did you choose that so quickly? Because when Mozart died in 1791, uh, much was made of his kind of mysterious death and he had said a bunch of things around the time he died and um, not specifically about this other composer, Salieri, but then when Salieri died, Salieri did say some things and but he was going crazy, probably had some kind of dementia or some something. You know, he in his lucid moments, he was like, no, I did not poison Mozart, but a time or two he said he did and nobody believed him. But uh, then... This play gets written, a little short play by uh, Alexander Pushkin, and uh, it talks in there about Salieri poisoning Mozart. It's just a play between, it's called Mozart and Salieri with two. And it just kind of perpetuated this whole rumor and lie. And then a film that came out in 1984 called Amadeus kind of. Oh, yeah, you know, I remember that. As well, kind of, uh, you know. So how did that start? Like how did, when did this start, this sort of, even whether it was like a professional rivalry or like they were, you know, yeah. not, not competitors or not, but like just that right before the poisoning, because that's obviously at the end of the history of the two of them together. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's because Mozart died in 1791 and it was like 30 years later that Salieri had his mental breakdown and said that he poisoned Mozart. Because I knew that Salieri had been appointed to like the Habsburg. He was like yeah. part of the Austrian court in mm -hmm. terms of like, you know, composing, et cetera. Yep. And that, you know, Mozart being, we'll say Austrian at the time mm -hmm. or Austro-Hungarian from that empire, mm -hmm. that he was a little bit, I guess, jealous is the wrong word, but that Salieri- I think that's the right word. Well, that Salieri was, you know, that Italian composers yep. were a little bit- more, um, maybe the Habsburgs were a little bit more fond or they were thought of with a little bit in higher regard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so uh, just as my, as done my research, that was the first thing that I was kind of yep. like, okay, so he had this in the beginning of sort yeah. of like this, who's yep. this guy? You the know? court, the Viennese court liked Salieri better than Mozart. They liked his music better. They liked his operas better. There were a couple different jobs that Mozart tried to get that Salieri had or got instead of Mozart. And that certainly didn't help either. Mm -hmm. But 
I don't think that there was ever any evidence, certainly on Mozart's side, of him being any more than a little bit annoyed at it. He wasn't, you know, vindictive or like death to Salieri. It was never like that, you know. And and they they wrote a piece of music. They not together really, but they contributed music to this cantata. Um, that they they used uh, the same librettist a few times. A librettist is someone who writes text uh, for opera, who writes the words for the opera. They're not considered a lyricist. They're called a librettist because mm-hmm. the libretto is the words to the opera. That's what that's called, libretto. Um, and they use the same librettist. So they had all these crossing of paths, like Salieri liked Mozart's operas. Mozart didn't like anybody's music, basically. He was an asshole to everybody. So, you know, he was never really one to say, oh, I loved that piece of music by a living composer. So uh, it wasn't unusual that Mozart didn't fawn over Salieri's music because Mozart didn't fawn over anybody's music. Yeah, you know? okay. When you chose the few different movements of different larger works, yeah, I wondered what the heck you were going to tell me to listen to her because I was like, geez, I mean, what do we even, how yeah. do we even remotely distill this down to listen to this because of, for these reasons? Right. And you had chosen three absolutely gorgeous pieces, maybe a couple more, but three to start. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose those three? And can we listen to one right now, please? Yes, we can. Um, I chose uh, just, we've talked about this piece before. Uh, we'll talk about it again. But uh, Mozart's Requiem is what he was writing when he died and he didn't finish it. So it's helpful to listen to some of that because there was all this mystery around the commissioning of that piece as well because he got that commission from a stranger who didn't want to be known. Super long but awesome story. Uh, and so he thought, Mozart thought he was writing his own Requiem, because a requiem is a mass for the repose of the dead. So he thought he was writing his own mass, mm-hmm. um, which he wasn't. Uh, he was writing it so someone else could say they wrote it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> which didn't really happen, but yeah, it kind of happened. But um, And then I wanted to compare that with Salieri's uh, Requiem. So we'll listen to just a little bit of the beginning of Mozart's Requiem, um, but we'll uh, listen to a little bit of the beginning of uh, Salieri as well. And there's some interesting harmonic similarities here. Uh, Salieri's Requiem written long after Mozart uh, was dead and gone. And I just uh, wondered about a couple of the passages. I'm like, wow, that's like the exact voicing and harmonic progression that Mozart did in his Requiem. But in any event, let's listen to a little Salieri. Salieri wrote a lot of sacred music, tons of sacred music, tons. Uh, One of the other reasons it would be so hard to do an actual comparison is because, you know, Mozart wrote 600, more than 600 cataloged pieces of music, so someone would know a more accurate count than that, but cataloged, there's like 656 or something, I can't remember. And uh, Salieri was pretty much the same. 
with his catalog. I mean, it's more than 500, 600 works or something. So, I mean, it's an insane amount. And Salieri was really successful. He had tons of really popular operas in multiple countries, mm-hmm. in multiple languages. And, you know, he hustled too, just like Mozart. Yeah. Wrote, wrote a lot of music. But a lot of it was sacred, yeah. Lots of choral stuff. What movements do you find those passages of the Requiems where you're like, this is just... It's tough because it's kind of idiosyncratic of the time in in and of itself, but um, in the sequence, there's this one spot toward the end of the sequence. That's what it's from. Probably in a different key, though. It's like the same voicing. Mm-hmm. It's the same voicing. Yeah. And everything. Like, wow. Yeah. Do you think that Solieri? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's almost subliminal, right? Copying, yeah. probably not. Yeah. But like, you know, a little riff sticks in your head. Yeah. And you're, you know, any musician knows you're like jamming, doing Definitely. your own thing. You, you just could like take a little something that you learn from, I don't know, guitarist. Who knows? A little Stevie Ray, a little Jimmy, but you <laughs> throw it in there because you're like, I remember that little lick and I love it. Exactly. Into something that's, For quote sure. unquote, yours. Yeah. No. You know? Definitely. There's mm-hmm. another spot too, and I can't. I'll have to look for it. Mm-hmm. But in the first 20 minutes, I hear two Mozart licks. I found that strange. And of the Salieri 20 minutes, first 20 yeah, minutes first of Salieri. Yeah, first 20 minutes of Salieri, I heard like two things that just, and, and I mean, I've listened to that Mozart Requiem backward and forward. Like, I, I mean, it's crazy how yeah. much I've listened to that piece of music. Because for not having Mozart in like my top five favorite composers, especially, but uh, it's just like I I know that piece and to hear the same voicings and harmon- har- harmonies, you know, is strange. Is but so that's strange. definitely that's enough to. Well, that's the start of it. Is to say, it's most likely subliminal, not copying a yeah, b. Yeah. It's also there's no sign up to this point that you know whenever Salieri wrote his Requiem, yeah. that he certainly poisoned or he was envious yeah. of or etc yeah. of Mozart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, none of that. None of that was real, you know? Mhm. Well, do you want to taste one? Yeah. Okay. So I decided to um to showcase color like I said. And I was originally going to bring a wine that I adore from the grape 
Valdigue, which I know Emily really likes. But we've already we've already talked about Valdigue, but it's a it was an example where you poured the Valdigue and it was it was the darkest, darkest of purples. Like it, if I would have blind tasted that wine, I would have looked at it and said, Well, I can tell just by looking. This is a Malbec. It's obviously not a Malbec, but when I tasted it, the wine was ten point like eight percent alcohol. So it was the one of the lightest red wines, one of them that I've ever had, without sweetness, so fermented dry. But looking at it, and when you swirled it, it was it, you noticed some viscosity the way it clinged to the glass. You would surmise that it was at least, you know, twelve to thirteen percent alcohol. Which when I say that, I say alcohol. The higher the alcohol, usually the higher the body of wines. When people go, I want a full-bodied wine, basically they're saying, I want a higher alcohol wine. Gotcha. Um, and so <laughs> one would be surprised when they poured it, they might be pleasantly surprised, or maybe they don't even realize that the wine was actually like lighter than lots of white wines, you know, <laughs> even though it had that rich color. So I brought, but then I decided we've had some mousy wines on the show on and off, and I wanted to bring a wine that was quite um, naturally crafted, but, um, you know, I talked about, you know, it's cloudy, it's um, weather's changing, and I wanted to bring something that was um, just a really fun way to look at the opposite spectrum, because most often we think of red wines being dark that are rich slash have heavy bodies, high alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to bring a wine that was the antithesis of that. So I brought a Barolo uh, from 2005 that is um, Nebbiolo is the grape in the Barolo region, which the Barolo region lies in kind of north northwestern Italy in a, a bigger region called Piedmont, or they, they would say Piemonte. And um, Barolo always has to be Nebbiolo, the grape Nebbiolo. And Nebbiolo has one of the lightest hues of wine that is around. It's like very, um, like a very, very, very light kind of rose hip color um, that quickly tawnies. Um, so it quickly gets kind of this like burnt or burnished or like copperish color when it when it ages. But it happens quite quickly, even though the wine can be very young, meaning um, you could still want to age it. But if you were to look at it, you'd be like, oh, God, drink up. No, the wine isn't prematurely aging. So um, the wine is 14% alcohol, yet when we pour it, which I'm pouring Emily a dram right now, I don't know, comment on the color. What do you think? Because we've, we've had quite a few red wines now yeah. at this point. Yeah, no, this one is very, like, dark, uh, but it, as in not red. It's, it is red, but it's almost, um, uh, you know, a burned orange kind of. Especially instead on the of, edges. Um, instead of holding it on under your hand, Emily, why don't you use your paper right there and hold it on top of your paper in the light? We're kind of in a, a little bit of a darker corner um, we are, to record. And plus, it's just dark outside. <laughs> <laughs> but when you hold it in the light in front of like white paper, does it look like a what would be thought of as a quote unquote deep wine, dark? Definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, it's like a it's like a lighter kind of ruby cherryish color, um, and. So just to talk a little bit about where color comes from in wine, you can just straight up, you can have a heavy-bodied red or a light-bodied red. Color does not matter, okay? But, and that, but that has to do with not only the grape varietal, it has to do with the soil. 
It has to do with how the wine is made and if there are any additives to it, because people can add things to stabilize or enhance color. But um, most wine folks know that uh, color resides in the skins um, and it, they don't reside in the pulp unless it's a special type of grape called a tainterier, which if you were to splice it, the pulp is actually really dark. Okay. Sometimes like blackish bluish. Most of the time the pulp is like this clear yeah. off greenish color, but then yep. the even color, in red grapes, yeah. Even yeah, yeah, and the red grapes especially. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so color is due to plant phenols. And these plant phenols reside inside the skins, and they're called it's a compound called anthocyanins or anthocyanidins, depending on the source you consult. And what's interesting is the Different grape varietals have different amounts of pigment in them. So that's first and foremost, right? Like Syrah has a different amount than, say, Gamay of that pigmentation. But to go one step further, it has to do with pH and the natural pH of a grape. Just like The color does. The color does. Wow. And I think we'll get to that in a mere moment. So just scores and pours. Scores and pours. To old Barolo. To old Barolo. Man. Yeah. I was going to start talking pH, but let's talk about that later. Let's get back to Salieri (laughs) and some some Mozart. I was debating between two overtures of Mozart's, uh, two operas he wrote toward the end of his life. Uh, One called The Magic Flute, one called uh, Don Giovanni. When was The Magic Flute, though? Let's look that up. For some reason, I just didn't write any dates down for this one. K620. K620. That's helpful, though, because that's kind of late. The year he died. No way. Mm hmm. Two days after. At Schickenader's Theater. Yep. And that's a German opera, too, which is interesting. The Magic Flute. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that that's German because so many of his others were Italian. But. Uh, in Italian. So um, why did you choose the overture specifically from the, the Magic, Magic Flute? Flute? Because Die Zoberflute. I'm yes. sure that's pretty much not how you pronounce um, that. Because Salieri loved this opera. Oh, he did? Okay. Yep, loved it. And so, yeah, we'll just listen to a little bit. The overture is fantastic. So here Let's it is. Let's do it. If you're going to go see one Mozart opera, oh, <laughs> Pandora's see more than one. Box. For, yeah, first of all, see more than one because, I mean, Mozart, his operas are absolutely fantastic and they're fun. And the writing for the vocalists is challenging and great. He wrote beautiful little arias. Um, his ensemble writing, where which means where there's you know like four or five singers singing at once, um, is brilliant. And uh, the magic flute is fantastic. It's uh, Mozart had recently become a Freemason, and so there's all kinds of Masonic symbolism in it, which is kind of cool. And it's also really mystical and magical, as opposed to being like a love Regal story. Or, a love story, yeah, yeah. Huh. It's like got you know 
a magic flute, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's really cool. And uh, Salieri loved loved that opera. Um, the well, reason... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to note, when we were listening to the music, um, Emily and I had a quick... Just We started talking. She was showing me some of her notes and um, mentioned that Mozart applied on two different occasions, about a decade or half decade apart, mm-hmm. for two different positions that Salieri currently held at that time. Well, and not the first. The first one, they were both up for it. Oh, okay. Yep. And okay. the first one, it was for the Princess of Württemberg, and she needed a vocal teacher. She was in Vienna to get, like, educated, and she needed a vocal teacher, and they both applied for that job. Um, Mozart didn't get it because he wasn't a vocal teacher. And she was a singer, too. And yeah. so... Uh, the emperor, I believe, was like, well, Salieri is the one with this, you know, storied career as a also a vocal teacher. He was a really uh, renowned, uh, you know, instructor of voice. And so that's why he got that gig. Hmm. And Mozart knew that, too. He, he knew that's why Salieri got it. Um, you know, it wasn't. But then the, the job that was the subsequent or not subsequent, the but the job that was a few years later. Emperor Joseph II died. Salieri had been the court composer or one of the court musicians and I think the court composer and when Joseph II died Mozart applied to be that person and Salieri was kind of already it and was going to stay it you know and so and that was almost kind of I think considered like kind of not cool it's like dude this guy already has his job why are you applying for you know yeah so that was maybe thought of as a little uncool, but um, yeah. And the yeah. first thing I thought of after I read her notes and just kind of confirmed, like seriously, mm-hmm. was yeah. it almost seemed like it was the opposite. Like instead yeah, like of Mozart's the one who's going to poison Salieri, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the one who had this sort of bone to pick mm-hmm. with someone else, as opposed to mm-hmm. you know the other way way around. Which um, when we were listening to just the beginning of that overture and how beautiful it is, it reminded me of the the herbal and the tones of the wine because when we first opened it and smelled it Emily was like whoa like I I could tell she had never had a wine like this before and I have never had this wine um recently I've had it maybe five or six years ago I had my only other bottle in my cellar and it was a bit different I'm glad I waited to open the second bottle because but it's very herbal there's a lot of like tea like components like savory herbs um which I don't know why the beginning of that overture reminded me of that. Yeah. But what did you think of how it tasted? Because we commented on the color, but... The taste, um, it it's so acidic and so tanniny, tannic, mm-hmm. that it's almost like that's almost what I focus on. Let me have a taste and, and think about some things. <laughs> this wine has been macerated on its skins for... Well over two months um, in wood, usually in wood barrels, and then transferred to large Slavonian boti, which are like larger size casks, for between three and five years. Um, in this case, I think it was upwards of five until it's ready to be released. And it's a nice incorporation of, you can definitely tell there's like oak mm-hmm. tannin there, mm-hmm. like how just how the pulling of your gums feels. It doesn't feel like fruit. It feels like, I mean... All of us had have probably put wood in our mouths at some point. Like think of a toothpick, think of you know yeah. tree bark, whatever. Um, and so that's um, an interesting part of the wine. It is. I, I 
she hit the nail on the head. Like it's really tannic. Mm -hmm. It's really acidic. It has quite a bit of life left if one were to cellar it. Um, but I wanted to talk about pH in wine because it's a fascinating topic. Do you think it's fruity? No, I don't. I think it's like dried red currants, dried cherry, like dried red fruit elements. Sure. But they're cherry all, they're now. all with a ton of like that herbaceous mm -hmm. floral old wood component for sure. Yeah. So, so what about pH? Well, so, um, what's an interesting thing to note is the lower the pH of a wine. So the higher the acid, the, the quote unquote redder, lighter in color, like red in the red hue of life okay. it's going to be. Okay. So think of Sangiovese, think of Pinot Noir. Um, and these grapes can all take that with a grain of salt. Cause if you, pick your grapes in November in California and it's Pinot Noir, it still is going to not have a lot of pigment, but it's it's going to be in the red family because the grape inherently has a lower pH, but it's still going to be really heavy, a great kind of myth buster okay. that Pinot Noir isn't always light because you're picking it very late, you're in a warm climate, et cetera. Okay. Whereas if you pick Pinot Noir in Burgundy in September, you're color is going to be possibly the intensity of your color is going to be even lighter, but they both have the disposition. They both have a disposition to have a low pH. Then we think of a higher pH. So technically it has lower acidity, Malbecs of the world, Zinfandels of the world. When we think of what those look like, regardless of where they come from, they usually are darker in color and be that is has to do with their tartaric acid content, which is like, I'm pointing to my head right now. I'm shooting it up to the world. <laughs> like that blows my mind. And like, yes. so it has nothing to do with the wine being fuller bodied or lighter bodied because wow. you can pick your grapes in August mm -hmm. and ferment them dry and it's going to be light bodied because you don't have a ton of available sugar to ferment it. And then you can harvest them all in October, November. High bricks, high sugars, and there's going to be so much food for those yeasts, and they're just going to produce a ton of alcohol. <laughs> and you're going to, regardless, the color is going to be, you know, somewhat reflective. And this is saying you haven't added stuff to it, right? Yeah. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to mention. Go ahead. Quick question, because you've said the term bricks before and something about how it makes it sweet or something. It's a term bricks for is, what bricks is it? Bricks is just a term um, that refers to uh, like a measurement that's in a refractometer. There are many vignerons, winemakers, that don't use a refractometer. They go through and they taste mm -hmm. and they say, we need to pick. Or they they taste and they look at what they, you know, the labor that they have and they say, we got to pick for various logistical reasons. There are other people that will cut or bite a berry. They'll put juice on the refractometer from mm -hmm. that berry and they'll look up into the sun or close to the sun and they'll be like, we're at 24 bricks. We got to pick tomorrow, you know, and it's very calculated on how much sugar and the, the density of the sugar in the grape. Bricks, though. What a weird term bricks. for it. Yeah, I, I wish I could tell. I know I thought it had to do with someone's name. But oh, I, I'm, okay. I'm pr pretty sure I'm wrong. Okay. What doesn't help this is if people, what doesn't help the color concept is like so many people go online and they want to learn about wine. Mm -hmm. And I won't mention the source, but today I was looking at something and it was called, quote unquote, a boldness chart. Oh. Bold. How bold is your wine? First of all, 
doesn't mean anything. I was like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> and it had all of the light wines. Yeah. Like Pinot Noir, San she Giovese. She did air quotes, by the way, when she I'm said air, light I'm air quoting all wines. over the flipping place right now. She is, yeah. Like um, San Giovese, Pinot Noir, Lagrine, you know, things that are kind of lighter in color, um, Grenache to some extent. We're all on the light bodied and light intensity set of the spectrum. And then it, you know, went all the way down yeah. to like Tanat and Mouvedre and all these really dark grapes. And I thought to myself, okay, <laughs> your, your color factor is beautiful. And you're kind of listing things in this order that people can comprehend, but don't throw light bodied. You're just not helping this factor. Yeah. And that, I mean, and these are people that are teaching other people right. sommelier rules, right? So this is something that is um, kind of skews what a consumer would think about it, yep. which is quite frustrating, but that's mm -hmm. that's a whole nother it's mm -hmm. a whole nother grain of salt. Another interesting fact is um, that has to do with color is think of so you have Pinot Noir that we'll just say because we're using that as or Nebbiolo. Let's use Nebbiolo because we're tasting that's it. It's a Barolo grape. Yep. Light in light in color. Yes. It's light in color, right? Or lightish in color. Depending on the soil that you plant it in it will render a slightly different color because think if you were to take a piece, a hunk of clay, mm -hmm. you're in your pottery class in university and you think of like squishing that, how hard is that to squish, right? It's clay, mm -hmm. it's wet, yeah. saturated. Yeah. Now think of limestone is like this kind of semi, it's like more porous, it's um, more, has to do more with chalk and calcium carbonate, but think it's a lot more, it's a bit more absorbent your, if you were, all things were equal and you were only planting Nebbiolo on these two soils, yeah. Nebbiolo will be lighter in color on limestone okay, and it'll be deeper on clay. And if you think about it, it's like, yeah. just think of what the soil feels like or looks like. Mm -hmm. And it makes total sense that it would be like more saturated, more like blue. Yeah. Yeah. And more access to water. Yeah. It's going to be darker in color and healthier as it were. As it were, for yeah, sure, as, as it, it were. In air quotes. Air as quotes. As it were. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, I, I, when I look at the monitor and I see that much Jill talking, I just want to talk more. You kind of freak out. Yeah, and I just want to talk more about uh, music. But well, I think that's fascinating. We can. Soil, mm -hmm. pH, yeah, and already registered kind of predisposed pigments. That's all, people. That's all. Let's not talk about body. No. Just, and then all things are not equal because things are, uh, grapes are harvested at different temperatures and mm -hmm. done different things too. Yeah. Different soils, different storage, different fermentation vessels. Exactly. And so now we're drinking a heavy wine, yeah. a full bodied wine slash high alcohol wine with yeah. very light color. Light color, but damn, is it acidic and tannic. My, my. Let's listen to an overture to his probably most successful opera he's known for is called Terrare. Terrare was originally uh, not in Italian. And uh, when it was translated to Italian, he had a different librettist and that librettist was named Lorenzo de Ponta. And Lorenzo de Ponta was a very famous librettist during the classical era. And he also wrote librettos for three of Mozart's operas, Così fan Tutte, Don Giovanni, and The Marriage of Figaro. De Ponte wrote six librettos for 
Salieri, one of which was this translation of Terrare. So we're going to listen to the overture, just a little bit of it. And I think it's great. I love the overture to this uh, opera by Salieri. Did you like it? Mm-hmm. I did. ever been made that Salieri copied Mozart or Mozart copied? I mean, you've said, oh yeah, you know, I heard a few riffs of Mozart in that Salieri, but has there been a, this person copied that person or not really? Um, No, I don't think so. What? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Not in this case. Not in these two guys. Not with these two guys. Okay. I think when you heard when I heard those things it was what you were saying where it was just kind of not intentional but probably he absorbed those harmonies through study or you know however that happened I don't think it was intentional So speaking of something that's not intentional you've mentioned some wine myths that have crossed your mind that I think you and I have talked about and you said, so why does everybody say they don't like Chardonnay, for example? Yeah. So can you tell me, yeah, what are, what are some myths that, or maybe possible misconceptions for, of wine from Mm -hmm. your perspective Mm -hmm. that maybe you've gleaned from our podcast, us tasting more wine together, that you're like, why do people always say this? Or what about... Well, yeah, I mean, where do I start? (laughs) Pretty much everything I knew. Um, uh, You know, the biggest one for me personally was that I didn't like red wine and I didn't like beer. Uh, Now I love them both. Thanks, Jill Mott. But I really did think that Chardonnay was a Chardonnay. Like, I didn't know. I had no idea that was so different. You know what I mean? I thought that's why it's called a Chardonnay. You know, it's like McDonald's. Like, you go to Japan, it tastes pretty much sort of like McDonald's. And you know what I mean? I just thought that's what that meant. Merlot is, this is what you're going to get with a Merlot, you know? And so that's a huge one. You know, you can't just go in and be like, unless you do know what you're talking about. Or unless you go to like your local Muni liquor store and are spending, you know, $9.99 on a stacked, you know, Merlot that yeah. for $9.99 from, yeah. I don't know, Australia, man, that juice is coming in at 30 cents a bottle. A lot of people <laughs> are making a fortune off of all the chemicals in that. Wow. Or I should say additives in that. Yeah, yeah. You know what you want and yeah. what to expect because they've made it exactly the way that you expect it, yeah. like a McDonald's. And, of course, I didn't know that they do that by adding stuff to it to make it all taste the same or consistent or predictable. 
I didn't know that that was a thing either. Whoa, Nelly. Whoa, Nelly. Jeez. They had so much stuff. You inquired in like the form of a statement, yet it was, it seemed like a question. You were like, gosh, I just can't believe that people buy, they ask for Chardonnay or they say they don't like Chardonnay because it's Chardonnay. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean, most people, when they say they don't like Chardonnay, what I think they mean is they don't like an oaked wine. Okay. Like an oaky, like a really oaky, buttery white wine. Mm-hmm. Let's face it. Let's take Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Grigio and you can oak those all the live long day. Yeah. There are examples of those and you can like, you can avidly, like you can seek them out. But um, some of the world's best Chardonnays are unoaked and or, or very lightly oaked and you can hardly tell they're there. Another yeah. good one that you had asked was about Riesling and sweetness. Yes. Jeez, so yeah. many. Jeez, I just sounded Norwegian that right there. That was so Minnesotan. Sorry. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. It's just that Barolo talking. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, but so, you know, a large percentage of the world's Rieslings that are made with any sort of quality in mind are not, they, they're not sweet. Um, when we think of the best New Zealand Rieslings, some of the best German Rieslings, Austrian Rieslings, they're bone dry. Yeah. The crappy Rieslings that everybody says they don't like sweet they don't reason because I don't like sweet is like the $4 bottle of terrible <laughs> back sweetened German wines. Like get that, let's get that out of our heads right now. Yep. yep. Um, yeah. I don't know. Are there any others you can think of? Uh, well, there was a really funny one uh, the other night when I was at the shop that you work at because you were doing a tasting and uh, there was a person there who thought that orange wine was made from oranges. Oh, that was, and that was like a great question. Why would that not be a, like, why do you call it orange wine? Because there are orange wines that are, you know, like various shades and sometimes it doesn't even, it's like copper and burnt mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. like, and she was like, so does it mean that orange wines, are they made with oranges? Mm-hmm. And I was like. Well, first she asked if it was fermented. Did you hear me, her ask that? I didn't hear her ask that. Yeah. I think you answered that question for her. I did. And yeah. you said they were or something. Yeah, I'm like, well, everything is. <laughs> and everything's fermented <laughs> in this shop pretty much, a lot of it. Yeah, most of it for sure. Um, and I said that's not a dumb question at all. But no, at least of course not. At least she's asking the like instead of coming in and being like, "Are all Chardonnays oaked?" Yeah. Instead of she's being not like, like, "Well, I don't like oranges, so I'm not even going to buy that orange wine." Yeah, that would be the equivalent, right? And she was like, <laughs> yeah. "Um, are they made with it?" I was like, "No, this is why." And she was like, "Great, I want one." Yes. And then she tasted one. I love it. Yep. Great. So they are delicious. Yeah. One last one. Mm, I've got others, but go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'd rather hear yours. Really? Why? I want to hear yours. <laughs> no, uh, I think, um, you know, just the ridiculously wide range at which uh, wines have alcohol, like content, like 6% to 14%. Or so, that's insane to me. Uh, 4.5%. 4.5% to... Depends on if we're talking about ports and sherries, then we nope, can... just wine. Okay. Well, those are wines. <laughs> I know, yeah. <laughs> um, not, not fortified wines. We'll say like, I think the highest percentage by volume alcohol that I've had that was not fortified was like 16.8. Okay. So, I mean, beer also has a wide range, but I've... I think the highest percentage beer I've ever had, which isn't saying much, but it's probably 11 and a half percent or something. Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, then that gets low. Obviously, there's three, two beer for fuck's sake. But I mean. But people think stouts are heavy. This is another good one. Right. Oh, I I want, I don't like Guinness because I don't like heavy beer. Well, first of all, if you drink Bud Light, Guinness has about the equivalent calories. It is a light beer. Is it dark in color? In color, yeah. Of course. But all that means is the type of malt that was used to make the beer. So it's the amount of available sugars that are there for the yeast to feed on will produce alcohol. And your type of yeast that are used and the quantity of malts used will render anything from the lowest alcohol beer I've ever had was like 3.2% all the way up to like a 24% alcohol beer, wow. right? So in like the, yeah. and then of course, when you're 24% alcohol beer, that's sweet. There's sweetness there. I mean, okay. they, so. Interesting. And it drinks, of course, that's like higher than a wine. What the hell is that? Is that a mead know. at that point? Yeah, I right. Mean, How do you do that? You can't knock one of those back right as soon as you get home from work. You just can't <laughs> down a 24%er and be like, this is about the most furled brow I've ever seen Emily Reese. Have. You can't go tip one of those back after the end of your that. day. I'm but, a chugger, though. <laughs> <laughs> I like big drinks. Okay, but so is, are there any other myths in... <laughs> goes on. <laughs> are there any other myths in classical music that you can think of, like one? I that... wanted to save them. Oh, okay. I want to save them. Myths debunked. Myths debunked. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to episode 13 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan, and I'm Paul Beach. Okay, what have we learned? Uh, so we, we've learned some things. We've learned, whoa, Nelly. Whoa, Nelly. Yeah. We're going to go over what we've learned. And uh, we've learned some things. Like, like whoa, Nelly. That's something that both Jill and Emily said in this podcast. Uh, so, you know, you be the judge. But I'm, but I was excited because they referenced the, the rise of Skywalker, which is I'm, I'm excited about.
Scores and Pores is a production of June Media, Inc.